please be advised for your ever discerning ear. I believe there are a few caveats that you need to hear. On this episode, there will be no profanity, no nudity, no adult situations, no torture, no graphic or excessively detailed mutilations, no vampires, no werewolves, no Frankensteins, no poop jokes, no pee jokes, or any jokes of that kind. I've got three stories for you. Odd birds of a feather. Yeah, you can listen to them alone, but I suggest doing it together. The first story is weird. The second one, gross. But I think the third one will upset you the most. It's called Bedtime Stories for Creepy Children, you see. Otherwise known as Bedtime Stories for Weird Kids, Volume 3. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrifying truths. This is A Scary Home Companion. When the crying woman in the car sped past him, Deputy Tim Lafferty clocked her at 75 miles an hour in a 45 zone. And at first, he thought that she was drunk. The way she was speeding, swerving, bumping into almost anything that got in her way. Deputy Tim was sure that she had to be on something. He put on his flashing red and blues, hit the siren, and pulled out behind her. To his astonishment, she sped up. He could not believe that she was trying to outrun him. This had never happened to him before. He saw that she rolled down her window and she was shouting something out to him, but it got drowned out in the sirens. Luckily, at this point, they were on the outskirts of town, near the edge of the old woods, and she hadn't heard anybody. Yet. But at this rate, she was bound to eventually. Deputy Tim called in her plate number, then put his training to good use. He positioned his car just right so that he could start tapping the back corner of her car with the front corner of his and gradually edge her towards the side of the road. It took a few tries. Finally, he was able to slow her down and start pushing her onto the grass beside the road. The town at this point was behind them and they were alone. The woman jumped out of her car, still shouting. Deputy Tim cut the sirens, but he left the lights on. He had his hand on his gun, but on seeing this doughy, barefooted pile of panic standing before him, he didn't feel threatened at all. She was screaming, I have to feed the baby. She pointed off into the woods. Took him a minute, but Deputy Tim saw that she was pointing towards an old house that was set just up the hill. It was mostly hidden in all the trees. But Deputy Tim saw some lights in the upstairs windows. 
He tried to settle her down as best he could, but the woman was having none of it. She kept hollering about the baby, and slowly, slowly, it started to get through to him. Wait, are you saying... Was she saying that a baby had been left alone in that house? Apparently, yes, she was. He finally got her to say that she had gone into town to get formula for the baby, but there had been a problem, and now she had been gone for too long. This escalated things for Deputy Tim. This was now a case of possible criminal neglect. There could be a baby in jeopardy, or already hurt. He picked up the radio to call dispatch, and that's when the woman took off running into the woods. I have to feed the baby! Deputy Tim had only a moment to decide, and in that moment, he chose to drop the radio and take off running after that woman. At first glance, he thought that she wasn't dangerous, but now she was coming across as completely deranged, and if there was a baby in peril up there, it was essential that he had to get to it before she did. This much was clear. So he ran after her through the woods. She was faster than she looked, but he managed to almost catch up to her as she ran up the front stairs to the house. He grabbed her on the doorstep, and he cuffed her right on the spot. She wept and said, please let her go. She had to check on the baby. She had to check on the baby. Deputy Tim said that he would check on the baby, and she would stay on the front porch. Inside, he heard a small voice wailing. He had two kids himself, so he knew the cry of a hungry baby when he heard it. He let himself in the front door, and he walked towards the sound. It was coming from the kitchen at the end of the hallway and he stopped himself just in time before taking a nasty fall. He looked down and saw most of the floorboards of the kitchen had all been ripped up, exposing the dirt floor basement down below. That's where the baby was. It was a big, fat baby, laying face down and wiggling in the dirt. Deputy Tim squinted his eyes. Maybe it was the distance or his perspective, but something didn't look right. It was hairless, smooth, diapered, as any two-day-old baby would be. But it looked like it must have weighed 50, maybe 60 pounds. It had the dimensions of a baby, you understand, but the size of a small man. And what's more, much more troubling, there were thin silver chains locked around both of the baby's wrists and both of its ankles. These chains were anchored to pythons that had been hammered into the four corners of the room. Deputy Tim was trying to figure out what was going on, and he didn't notice the woman sneaking up behind him. Her arms were cuffed behind her back, but she lowered her head and charged him like a bull and knocked him right over the edge. He landed a few feet away from the baby. Up close, he could see that it wasn't really a baby at all. And al although it was moving, it was not alive, at least not in the sense of what we consider to be alive. Up close, what looked like a baby from above was really a thick, leathery carapace, 
almost like a semi-rigid bug shell with a long seam running down the baby's back. The baby was only moving because something inside of it was writhing and wriggling, and then the seam on that leathery skin burst open, and something not of this world emerged and rose wetly into the air. It looked like a column of flesh, a tree trunk made up of a thousand thin stems tightly wrapped into a bundle. But each of these stems were alive. Each long, snake-thin strand, an impossible living string coated with a, a viscous goo that smelt like sulfur. Countless little tendrils that were now starting to unravel. They started pulling away from one another, still connected at the base, but stretching out, filling up the basement around Deputy Tim, who saw each of the tendrils ended in a mouth, a mouth full of baby teeth. The chains jangled and pulled tight as all the toothy tentacles surrounded him. And from up above, the woman said, Thank you for feeding the baby. So there was a period of time in my life where I worked overnights, the graveyard shift, as a security guard at a college of veterinary medicine. This is a, a, a true story, by the way. Truer than most, even. This was a fairly big school with a few hundred students and also two full veterinary clinics. One for large animals, horses and farm animals and the like, and a small animal ER. So there was a fair amount of real estate to cover on my nightly rounds. I also walked people to their cars after hours. You can never be too careful after all. And I let in emergency cases into the ER. I opened the gates for trucks that were dragging colicky horses and trailers at all hours of the night. There was a lot of pretty neat stuff there in the vet school. But most of it was just offices, classrooms, what have you. They did have, side note, a tissue digester there. Local rendering trucks would bring dead animals pack into this machine, this tissue digester, which used a combination of heat and chemicals and acid to break down everything into basically a, a bucket of black sludge. The tissue digester exploded one night, and liquid animal goo caked the walls. Not pleasant smelling, nor to look at. But that is actually not what I want to tell you about. So every night I have to make the rounds, the perimeter, but I also have to, at some point, check out every single room in the place. There are a lot of classrooms, and one night I walk into a science lab, and I see something there that I'd never seen before. Imagine, if you will, a, a darkened room with high ceilings. It probably looks a bit like your old high school science classroom with the, the high islands of tables with the black marble tops surrounded by stools. There are 12 or 16 of these long, tall tables down four rows 
in the center of the room. And on each of these tables are a set of four dogs. Dead on their backs, little paws reaching up towards the ceiling. Just like in the old cartoons, how, how dead animals always have stiff legs. It was just like that, for real, down to a pupper. A few dozen dead dogs of all makes and models, shapes and sizes. All still. All silent. All wrapped loosely in plastic and waiting for the next day's class. To prove that I visit every room in the place on my shift, I have to touch a sensor and then write in the log when I touch that sensor so that later on they can match up the information. Which means that I have to walk through this room, past all the dead doggos, to the opposite side, touch the sensor, and then walk back. Okay, so this is not a problem. I can do this because it's not actually scary. It's just creepy as hell. Of course, I, I can't help but to look at them as I walk past. How can I not? I'm a dog lover. So there was the rubberneck effect of staring at a car crash. They all did look peaceful, though. So I crossed the room, I touched the sensor, and then I walked back past all the dogs with no problem at all. I get to the door, I have the handle under my fingers, and then I hear it. The crinkling of plastic. I hovered there for a second, maybe a second. Do you think that I looked back? You had better believe that I did not look back. I tore the door open, I hustled my bustle right the fussle out of there, and then I called in sick the next night, just to be safe. Hmm? Yeah, I said fussle. Trying to be kid-friendly here. Kids like stories about dead dogs, right? The police thought that the case was just about three missing people. The truth was there was a lot more to it than that. A very clever young woman named Jessica, meanwhile, had a different take on the case than the police. She'd been researching it independently, you see, running down leads on her own since the second disappearance some five weeks ago. Thankfully for her, summer vacation had started soon after that disappearance, and so she was able to throw herself into the case completely. She had a feeling that this was going to be the big one, her first real case. Jessica was a bold young woman, very smart and resourceful, no question. And she was indeed onto something. But she hadn't actually been contracted by anybody to look into this. In fact, she had to do a lot of sneaking around just to get anything done. Because Jessica thought of herself as a detective, she called herself a detective, she had even made up some business cards that said, Jessica, meanwhile, intrepid detective. She was actually a 14-year-old kid. Not even in high school yet, and certainly not a practicing gumshoe. 
Jessica's three biggest role models and inspirations for life were who she considered to be the three greatest detectives of all time. Sherlock Holmes, Batman, and Nancy Drew. Like all of them, Jessica had the burning desire to solve mysteries. This was inside of her. There was nothing she could do about it. It wasn't about being hired to do a job. Being a detective was something that you did, regardless of circumstance. And so, when the disappearances started, Jessica paid close attention to the news and started digging deeper on her own. She had one whole wall of her bedroom covered in corkboard with a full-blown map of the city, which was now covered with dozens of thumbtacks of many different colors. Jessica knew that besides the three officially missing people that were part of the case, there were at least two other people in the next county over that went missing in the same time frame. What's more, in the months leading up to the first woman who went missing, there had been a rash of missing pets all over town. A scary number of animals just vanished. The cops apparently did not think that was important, but Jessica did. She thought every detail was important, no matter how small, so she mapped everything out, and when she saw patterns and clusters start to develop, then she started to take trips during the day and visit these important areas on her bike, where she took pics and footage on her phone, she noted the abandoned buildings in each area, she checked out each one of them. By checking out all the areas with clusters of disappearances, she thought that she could start to eliminate where the perpetrator definitely was not. Sooner or later, she would be left with where he was. And she was right. Jessica had always been clever beyond her years, and it had often gotten her into trouble. But this would certainly be the most trouble ever. Nancy Drew, her idol, crossed wits with the likes of jewel thieves, counterfeiters, hijackers. Nancy didn't live in the real world, and she'd never come up against anything with such a depth of cruelty and evil behind In Jessica's grid search of the industrial section of town, which had the most recent cluster of animal disappearances, it was very slow going because here there were a lot of old warehouses and abandoned buildings, and she, by necessity, had to check out each one of them until she hit the jackpot. The smelly, rotten, spoiled jackpot. The foul odor of festering meat on the breeze, that's what caught her attention. But what got her to come in for a closer look was an equally strong scent of mink oil. These smells came from inside a large steel warehouse that looked more like an airplane hangar. Since this entire end of the block was empty, there was no one else around to notice the intensely bad smell of meat. The closer she got, the more overwhelming it became. So strong that it could certainly have come from the missing animals. Now that she was this close, she had to know. She had to solve this mystery. 
So she parked her bike, and she took the pepper spray from out of her pocket. She went around the side of the building, quietly looking for a way in. And then she found one, an emergency exit, that had actually been propped open a couple of inches with a chunk of cinder block. And this close, she could hear that there were voices from inside. Low, murmuring voices, all coming on top of one another, but not like arguing or bickering, more like an undulating poetry of guttural sounds. These weren't even words now that she listened. They were just noises. It was a music of pure chaos. Every discordant voice somehow blending together to make order, to make rhythm. It was primal, primitive. It was otherworldly. And it was most certainly entrancing. Jessica put her phone on silent because she'd learned that lesson the hard way before. And she crept inside this darkened building. It was huge inside, cavernous. And though it was unlit, there was enough ambient light coming in between the sheets of metal on the walls to give her enough light to see. And it was a very easy path to follow because the building was completely empty. The strange singing was coming from the back, just past a set of swinging double doors. Jessica crept across the room quietly and stopped just short of the door. This was the source not only of the singing, but also of the smell. She gently pushed the door open just a few inches, just so she could slip in completely unnoticed. And although Jessica might have been an intrepid detective, she still knew in an instant that she had now in, way over her head. She was crouching, hidden behind a pile of scores of individually wrapped parcels, each wet lump wrapped in a red-soaked cloth. Jessica did not need to look underneath the cloth. There were such a variety of shapes and sizes, and a couple of them were even human-sized. She had solved the mystery of the missing pets and people. Hooray! But now what? She was looking at a pile of bodies, afraid, afraid to look any further around the room, just in case it got worse. The off-kilter chanting of the crowd was deafening. And so she gradually summoned the courage to peek over the top of that bloody mound and look at the congregation of singers. There were over 20 of them, all gathered around a withered old woman who sat at an old-fashioned spinning wheel. They were chanting and singing to her, for her, about her, as she used a needle and cat gut and spun the wheel and wove a garment out of human skin. With growing horror, Jessica saw that every person in the room was wearing similar garments made of fur, of pelt, and skin. The cult sang and chanted and praised the woman who made their clothes, and Jessica needed to get out of there fast. So she crawled back to the door. 
as she got back to her feet to leave, the withered old woman came up behind her and put her wrinkled hand on Jessica's shoulder. At first glance, Jessica had thought the woman was naked, but up close, she could see that the woman was just wearing a full suit made out of skin. Where are you going, dear? The woman asked her. You look so cold. Let me make you something to wear. Jessica tried to slip away, but the woman held her fast, and the others started to gather around, still chanting. You have such lovely skin. Jessica Pepper sprayed the old woman in the face, pulled free of her grasp, and pushed through the swinging doors. The others stopped singing and came after her as the old woman shrieked in a language that Jessica had never heard before. And she ran, hearing a dozen pairs of bare feet slapping against the cement behind her. She felt someone closing in fast just as she rounded the corner. Her pulse was in her ears and she could barely hear anything else. Just as she got to the door, a hand grabbed the back of her shirt, so she picked up that chunk of cinder block off the ground and swung it, knocking some crazy lady off of her back. She threw the door shut and ran to her bike, and she pedaled. She pedaled like she'd never pedaled before. Six blocks later, when she was sure that there was no one behind her, Jessica stopped on the sidewalk where her arms and legs started to shake and cramp up from the fear, and she started to vomit hot bile into the gutter from what she had seen. And she thought, for the first time, that maybe she should reconsider being a detective. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. Bedtime Stories for Creepy Children was produced by Chelsea Oxendine, who also provided the original score and musical arrangement. For more of her music, you can find her on SoundCloud, YouTube, or the other episode she scored, The Skin Merchant. As always, you can send feedback to the show to a scary home companion at Gmail or on Facebook under the same name links to everything in the show notes.